The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. The government is coming under huge pressure from the travel industry on a day when there is likely to be a redrawing of the green, amber, red travel list. Protests across the country yesterday showed the strength of feeling in an industry with many jobs at risk. Air crews and pilots were amongst those out demonstrating. At the same time, the daily number of new infections in Britain is at its highest since February and the vaccination rate is giving cause for concern, especially here in London, where Boris Johnson has called a summit to try to tackle the relatively low take-up. And it's also decision day for the Bank of England today, looking at questions about potential tapering of support for the economy and even interest rate rises in the future. Well, joining us now is the man who had Jeremy Corbyn won the 2019 election, might be sitting in Rishi Sunak's chair as Chancellor of the Exchequer, John McDonnell, Labour MP for Hayes and Harlington. John, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us again. Um, Let me ask you then a fairly general question. How well do you think the Chancellor and the Bank of England under Andrew Bailey have handled this crisis? What would you have done differently? From the beginning, I was in talks. Well, I was Shadow Chancellor. When the pandemic first arrived, I was in talks with Rishi Sunak and trying to ensure that we provide as much support and cooperation as possible from the opposition so that it didn't become a party political issue. But the, the message I tried to get to him from the beginning is that on all the actions that we need to take was recognise the severity of the pandemic. And actually it was about making sure our interventions were large scale. So it was about going big, but it also was about promptness. Do it quickly. And, you know, on your news this morning, you've mentioned the aviation sector. I have a particular interest because I've got Heathrow Airport in my constituency. One of the last conversations I had with Rishi Sunak was about aviation and said, this is a particular sector that actually will be hit possibly the hardest, and therefore you need a strategy early on. Talk to the companies, talk to the unions, talk to some of those community representatives as well. That never happened. So my big criticism is always that they haven't gone fast enough or big enough, and they always seem to be dragged to the table, sometimes kicking and screaming to get action on some issues. So I believe, you know, that we've been in serious situations, we're trying to come through it. The vaccination is working, getting out there. But we can't be in a situation where economic support is always so late and tardy and not comprehensive enough. OK. I mean, the amount of support is enormous and comparable in many ways to what's been done in Europe, although nothing compares, I suppose, to the US. Um, why do you think there's not been then um, support for the aviation industry? As you say, it's uh, there was the protest yesterday. Is it simply that the sums of money are so vast? 
It's a combination, I have to say, of both government inability to act swiftly enough and understand the nature of the industry. I have to say also some of the companies have not played their cards particularly well either um, in terms of the way in that they've treated their staff and also in the way in which some of them have exploited the situation in the hope that somehow they'll come out, emerge out of the jungle as the bigger beast while others go to the wall. So I, I blame both government and sectors of the industry. But now, now is not the time to blame. Let's just get on and get a real strategy going now. Because with the aviation industry as well, what we've got to recognise is that if the aviation planning for the future has got to be one which tackles the issue of climate change as well. And you've seen today there's the government's own climate change committee has come out today saying they welcome the government's ambitions but are condemning the government for the failures in terms of implementation. And aviation is one of those sectors where we need to develop a sustainable aviation strategy for the long-term future. And that hasn't emerged. And if anything comes out of the pandemic in terms of the industrial uh, policy making, maybe it is this whole thing about you need to plan long-term now and ensure that the investment goes in but recognise we're moving from one terrible crisis of pandemic to a bigger existential threat to climate change, and that has to be number one on the agenda. And, of course, there is the wider economy, the deeper economy, I suppose, if you like, the Bank of England independent, of course, but uh, Rishi Sunak, Andrew Bailey clearly clearly talk and, and work on things together. Do you think the Bank of England has has done all right through this? I mean, the, the levels of support, obviously, in terms but, of, of, of support for the economy, but also uh, the, the way that they have played the more general picture, including, of course, interest rates. Well, I, I was when I was shadow chancellor, I was trying to get a debate then before the pandemic about the future role of the Bank of England and how maybe its remit should be widened to look at to longer term in terms of both tackling the productivity crisis that we've got, also bringing the climate change onto the agenda itself. So now's the time to look at the longer term role of the Bank of England and the way it can work with government and others mm. and ensuring that, as we say, we've got a, a strategy. I'm, I'm not on the slogan build back better i want uh, something that doesn't go back but really looks to the future so yeah the the bank of actors it, it performed its role they've done it in a, a very traditional way in some respects in the same way it did during the banking crisis learning some lessons from that but we need to move on now the bank of england needs to now recognize that there's a much bigger challenge on the horizon and it needs to play its part in that and well, that is about longer-term but, sustainable environmental investment. Yeah, but the Bank of it, Mark Carney was at the forefront of that debate. He was amongst the first was, central bankers in the world to do that, that to yeah. be fair to him. So, no, but I my question, Mark, Yeah, Mark was at the forefront of that, and I welcomed that. And in fact, I publicly congratulated him for it. I don't think the pace has been maintained, though, with mm. the new governor. And I also don't think the government has given it sufficient encouragement to play that role. Of course, the Bank of England retains its independence, and I support that. But there needs to be a more coherent linkage between government, industry and the Bank of England about the long-term financing of the way we'll tackle climate change. John, let me move you on, if I may, to what's going on within the Labour Party. Obviously, the Batley and Spen by-election is coming up. Uh, a lot of polling suggesting that it's by no means uh, a certain Labour victory. In fact, there is some considerable doubt about that. How damaging would it be if they lost a seat like that at this stage? Well, it would be. I haven't been to Batley and Spen. I'm going up there on Monday, but I've seen the polling and I've also heard 
the reports back. And obviously what we've got to do in this last week is try and turn that round so that we can secure a victory in the, in the constituency. But of course, um, any any opposition party at this stage should be winning by-elections. And if we we lose two in a row, obviously it will be detrimental to building up the momentum for the next general election. And serious considerations will have to be given about the overall strategy for the party. I've said, well, I've said before, Hartley, Paul, but I've tried to... I try to be as loyal as I possibly can publicly to Keir Starmer, but I've, I made it clear then that we we need to be absolutely clear about the vision of the society that we want to create, the policy programmes that we're mm. advocating, and we need to get on the stomp campaigning around those issues. Uh, this idea well, that somehow you can win elections just by the failure of the government, I'm afraid it's just wrong. You have to present an alternative, and we haven't done that sufficiently yet. Yeah, what do you think that that message from Keir Starmer is? Why why is it failing to cut through? Well, largely because there hasn't been a clear message. There hasn't been that presentation of the sort of society that we want to create when we go into government. And that needs to come quickly. Now, Keir's launched, given his due, he's launched a policy review. What I'm saying is, of course you want to review policies, but build upon some of the successful policies of the last couple of administrations or the way in which we did look at the climate, how we tackle climate change, the way in which we were looking at investment in our infrastructure and skills and social care and our public services, build upon those. And in that way, people will know what you stand for. So the policy review is a good idea, but it needs to be done quickly and it needs to be really engaging with people. So people feel they're participating in a really constructive and exciting debate about the future. I think... The Tories may well be ahead in the polls at the moment, and of course they'll get an element of COVID um, vaccination bounce, all of that. But they need to be challenged about what the future lies, and I think that's where they'll fail, because although Boris Johnson is a very good campaigner when it comes down to the detail of implementation of policy, as we've seen from the climate change report today, I'm afraid he's not a very good prime minister for achieving those objectives. John, people will say it's all very well. You you giving advice to, to Keir Starmer. Obviously, the, the 2019 well, election was a disaster for the Labour Party yeah. in many ways. Well, so they say, well, that didn't work. Keir Starmer's approach doesn't seem to work. What would work? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I suppose I'm the best person to learn from about uh, having lost an election. Then you learn the lessons from it, really. And what was interesting with how we lost... Well, in 2017, we came close to winning. In 2019, we lost. We lost in terms of the way our first-past-the-post system uh, worked. Well, on that basis, we lost heavily. And the, the message from that is that many of the individual policies were polling incredibly well, but there was no overall narrative that brought that all together, the real vision. And I think that's what you need now. You need an intellectual vision that people can understand where you're going and what sort of society you want to create. In addition to that, I have to say also that Brexit was the biggest issue in the 2019 election, and we just couldn't get around that because our own party was split on it. That's no longer an issue, so you can move beyond that and you can really start talking about the sort of society you want to create. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look now at what else is making news in the world of politics. And Caroline, there's been a response to that incident in the Black Sea between a British destroyer and various elements of the Russian military. Yes, the Kremlin taking a hard line, saying that the ship incident was a deliberate provocation by the UK and that Russia will take a tough approach to territorial violations. So that from the Kremlin, uh, this after that naval confrontation in the Black Sea just off of Crimea. Meanwhile, the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, has called on China to respect the basic freedoms of Hong Kong residents following the arrest of journalists and the closure of the Apple Daily newspaper in the former British colony. Meanwhile, when it comes to the vaccination programme here in London, Boris Johnson is convening a summit to take place tomorrow to try to deal with the lagging vaccination rates in the capital. So the latest regional data show that 60% of Londoners have had at least one dose of the vaccine compared with 73 to 79% in other areas in England. A surge in cases of the Delta variant is continuing to push infection levels up uh, to, to levels actually that we've not seen since winter. Daily fatalities though, Roger, do remain low. And junk food ads are going to be banned before 9pm on British television, but loopholes will allow brands to continue to advertise online under new rules announced by the government. The ban, which will come into force at the end of 2022 as part of a drive to cut child obesity, will outlaw daytime and early evening TV slots for foods high in fat, salt and sugar, and bar paid for advertising on the internet. The Public Health Minister, Joe Churchill, says the measure could help reduce the number of obese children by more than 20,000 over the coming years. But I fear, Caroline, uh, from my experience, probably yours children don't tend to watch television these days they do uh, tend to be online no not in a linear format certainly not uh, the food manufacturers though have really been up in arms and um, their argument is this um, kind of intervention from the government really does not work when it comes to dealing with obesity now, it's a week since the Lib Dem win in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election caused something of an earthquake in politics, the return of the third force, and a great deal of soul-searching in Tory circles about whether, while making a bid for Labour's red wall, they'd lost their core support. So what should we make of the reshaping of the landscape and the echoes of the Brexit vote exactly five years on from that vote? Joining us now is Robert Ford, Professor of Political Science at Manchester University and co-author of the book Brexit Land, Identity, Diversity and the Reshaping of British Politics. Robert, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. Uh, I suppose the basic question is, is losing the blue wall the price for stealing the red wall as far as Conservatives are concerned? Well, it, it may be. Uh, I mean, that's the question that Cheshire and Amersham raises. Uh, I mean, one statistic that's worth bearing in mind and will no doubt be making a lot of Conservative MPs sweat at the moment is that there are 35 currently Conservative-held seats that lean remain in the south of England with the Liberal Democrats second, where the current MPs' majority is smaller than the majority that was held in Chesham and Amersham. So that's 35 MPs with good cause to worry uh, about that result. On the other hand, of course, we do know that by-elections tend to produce a kind of anti-incumbent protest dynamic, uh, which in uh, times before the coalition, the Liberal Democrats were extremely effective 
uh, at mobilising. So there were local issues in play as well, High Speed 2, planning reform and so on. So I think there's two stories at play here. One is the Brexit realignment story. The other is the return of the Liberal Democrats as kind of anti-incumbent gadflies. They seem finally to have shaken off uh, the reputational legacy uh, of the coalition. Hmm. Okay. well, though there are only a dozen of them in Parliament right now. Um, We were just speaking to John McDonnell, of course, um, of the Labour Party, the former shadow chancellor. And we were talking about the difficulties for Labour in terms of cutting through to voters, that the message um, for, from him, from John McDonald formerly, and also from Keir Starmer, doesn't seem to be cutting through with voters. Is this part of a kind of great redrawing of the landscape that many people had sort of predicted post-Brexit, that the Tories and Labour are really having to fundamentally rethink? Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to read too much into um, Labour's success or failure on messaging or anything else from Cheshire and Amersham um, because it was a seat where they started uh, a long way back um, and uh, where there was really no prospect of them winning. Um, again, what it does point to is a willingness of Labour voters to vote tactically for the Liberal Democrats, a willingness that rather went down in the immediate aftermath of the coalition. As to the broader messaging problem, I mean, I'm going to do the, the sort of awful uh, academic thing and say, well, it's too soon to tell and we don't have enough information. Uh, you know, we're only a couple of years into this parliament. It's got years left to run. And we're in this very unusual environment of, um, you know, a global pandemic uh, with the news agenda very much dominated by stories about the pandemic and so on. That's a very difficult environment uh, for an opposition to get a hearing in. And as John McDonnell will, will know very well from his own experience in opposition, it's hard to get a hearing uh, 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 even in uh, more favourable times. So, you know, I'd say it's too soon to tell on that front, really. And Robert, I suppose that is the interesting question that if you say, OK, the uh, people perhaps in some of the northern constituencies who are social conservatives, uh, but are, are perhaps more left in terms of economics, which the Tories seem to be pulling on board, both with the kind of initiatives of putting money into these areas, but also taking quite a big position in the culture wars, the anti-woke uh, issue, if you like, if they've grabbed them, and if the Lib Dems are grabbing the other side, which is perhaps the metropolitan Metropolitan graduate vote, where does Labour go? What what on earth could it possibly grab onto? Where could its constituency be? Well, I mean, uh, one thing to remember is that the geography is is a little bit more complicated than that. So that there is a swathe of seats, um, as I mentioned, roughly 30 to 40 of them, where you've got a kind of straight Tory Lib Dem fight, and uh, Cheshire and Amersham happens to be one of them. But We've all talked a lot about the red wall, and now we're talking a fair amount about the blue wall. But, you know, some things in politics just don't change. And uh, elections, the next election, like every election since the Second World War, will primarily be won and lost in traditional conservative versus Labour battleground. Some of those lean leave, some of those lean remain. Uh, Many of them can't straightforwardly be categorised either as socially conservative Red Bull leave seats or as socially liberal Remain seats. They're a mixed bag. That's why they're battleground seats. So uh, ultimately, Labour's challenge is the same as the challenge of every opposition. Uh, They have to unite discontent with the incumbent government across the country. And the bigger problem they have uh, and have had all year so far 
is that people are not particularly unhappy with uh, the government's performance on the big issue of uh, the day, which is um, the pandemic, uh, particularly the vaccination programme. We are starting, incidentally, to see the first hint that that may change in the autumn. Uh, the salience of coronavirus is falling in the polling. Uh, the ratings that people give the government's performance on the pandemic are starting to fade. So perhaps this autumn we will return to a more normal kind of political agenda. And then to link back to what John McDonnell says, Labour really need to have big things to say when that normal agenda uh, comes because uh, fortune favours the prepared. So if I was them, I'd be saying, what are we going to do? What's our big push once we get back to a slightly more normal political agenda? Hmm. OK, so if it's sort of down to the traditional Tory Labour battleground seats in a general election, what about the Liberal Democrats? Are they essentially anti-incumbency? Do they actually have their own group of positive voters? Are we over that coalition government? You know, you referenced it uh, just earlier. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that was, I think, largely overlooked in the 2019 general election, partly because, you know, in seat terms, the Liberal Democrats did very poorly, is that there were very large swings to them in many seats in the southeast of England. We're talking 10 point, 15 point, 20 point swings. Uh, but in seats which before that had whopping conservative majorities, and these were all essentially Tory Remain seats. And that means that both demographically and politically, they have a much more coherent electoral coalition than they traditionally have done. Basically, they do well with middle-class professional Remainers um, uh, in the south of England. They are basically the party of suburban discontent in South England, uh, which is very helpful to them in the next general election campaign because it's really clear what type of voters and what type of seats they're targeting. They don't have to try and be all things for all men because there's only a small number of seats where realistically they can win and those seats all look very similar to each other. So Robert, if looking forward, if we get to the point where the, the pandemic impact fades away a bit, the Brexit impact probably fades away a bit, will the Red Wall stick with what they've gone for in terms of quite a lot of them going for the Tories? Are, are we, do we really see that identification continuing, particularly if the Tories think, hang on a second, we don't want to lose our own backyard? Well, I mean, that, Roger, is one of the great million-dollar questions of current uh, British politics. And we got a really interesting first indication as to the answer in this May's local elections. That's the first set of elections of any kind that we've had since, uh, you know, Boris Johnson, quote unquote, got Brexit done, got the Brexit deal through, got the t trade and cooperation agreement through. And the evidence was very clear from that set of local elections that places that voted very heavily to leave, the Conservative vote is continuing to hold up, it's continuing to rise in many cases as the Conservatives consolidate support that once went to, the, to UKIP or to the Brexit party. So there is no sign yet uh, of leave voting red wall type seats having like lost their love for the current Conservative party. Quite yeah. the opposite. And of course, there is another 
category of seat, another chunk of seats we've not discussed yeah. just yet, which is seats uh, like Hartlepool, where there was a big Brexit party vote yeah. in 2019, and the Labour Party MP has a relatively perilously small majority. Maybe 20, 25 seats that, like that, including seats for people yeah. like Yvette Cooper and Miliband and stuff. And, they, and if I was Labour, I'd still be worried about those. There's no I evidence think, yet of a turning I think the they probably still are, and uh, probably calculating it. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.